Well, it's good morning from uh, me. My name's Peter. I'm one of the um, pastors at the Project Church, and it's so good to have real people here. <laughs> uh, it's good to have you. Uh, good to have you uh, who are joining us online as well. I'm not sure whether you've noticed, but there's a lot of books on authenticity, how to be authentic. You can easily find books on authentic marriage, leadership, parenting, marketing, uh, and so on. Um, one of the more significant uh, voices in this uh, whole kind of push toward authenticity has been Brené Brown. Some of you might have seen her shame talk on, uh, on TED. Um, in one of her best-selling works, she defines vulnerability, which is part of uh, being authentic, as daring to show up and let ourselves be seen. You know, Brené's work is about helping people to be authentically themselves. Um, so here, here's a good question at this point. Uh, why do we need so many books that teach you how to be authentic? Isn't that, isn't that a strange thing that there's so many books out there? Um, well, I want to suggest to you that it, it's probably a little harder than it seems. Uh, I think that we all know, we all experience, and we also see in other people a bit of a disconnect between who we are and how we appear. I remember having a uh, conversation with someone uh, a while ago, and uh, it was a good conversation. We were talking about what the real self is, like who, who really are you? And uh, I asked this question of them. I said, uh, who really knows you? And this particular person answered my question with a question, which is always a smart thing to do, um, especially when you're talking to me. Um, and they, they said this, they said, do you think it's okay if it's only your spouse who knows the real you? Now, that was curious to me that they said that. And the reason why that was curious is because they, uh, they have children, this particular person. And so I replied to them and I said, okay, um, if, if your spouse is the only one who really knows the real you, then who are your children relating to? This uh, particular person paused for a moment and then we went on and talked about other things. But I'm sure that, I'm sure that you can see the, uh, the problem here is this particular person, there was a real kind of them underneath and uh, there, was a, there was a them that they were portraying and they were a little bit different. And I'm not actually suggesting for a moment um, that, that we should be judgmental toward this particular person. I think what was going on inside of uh, them was what goes on inside of most of us. Um, you know, there's a disconnect between us on the outside and us on the inside. We, we all live with some kind of disconnect like that. Uh, who we are, who we think we are, and how we portray ourselves don't always match up. So this morning, um, the first two-thirds of the message, I'm going to give you a five-point argument, all right? Um, so this is not a shouting conflict argument. This is, um, I'm, I'm establishing something with you for, the, uh, for this morning. So here's, here's the first point. It's the one that I uh, mentioned just then. It's who we are, who we think we are, and how we portray ourselves to others don't always match up. I want to drill down a little bit more into that one, um, um, into that kind of aspect of the disconnect. Uh, let me start with this question for you. Um, just as an example, uh, what do you think God is like? Now, you could say all sorts of things, um, but what do you think 
God is like? It's a good question, right? And I, I would just, if I was having a conversation with you about this as we're drilling into this first point, uh, I'd say, just tell me something, anything about God uh, that you can think about. And one of the things you might actually say is he's sovereign. He's, he's in control. He's in charge. Nothing's stronger than him. Nothing's too hard for, hard for him. And then if I was having a conversation with you, I'd say, okay, let me just push this a little bit further for you. Uh, does, he, does he love you? And you'd say, yeah, yeah, he does. Uh, if you're in the church and you're a Christian, you'd say, here's something about God. He's strong, he's powerful, he's in charge of everything, there's nothing stronger than him, and he loves me. And I might even say to you, well, how much? And if you've been uh, reading your Bible, you'd go, especially if you're reading John 15, one of the verses you might pull out is, as a father has loved me, so I have loved you. And you'd say, Jesus loves me um, like the Father loves the Son. That much. Trinitarian love. That's what we've got going on at this point. And I would kind of summarise your statements about what you believe about God, and I'd say something like this. So he's in charge. Nothing is stronger than him. He can do anything, and he loves you with Trinitarian love. And you go, right on, got it. Nail it. And I would probably ask another question. Do you ever get unhelpfully anxious? And you'd probably go, uh, yes. And one of the things I might say to you, and I wouldn't mean to be unkind by saying it, is I might say, why? You have a God who is all-powerful and loves you like the Father loves the Son. Why would you get anxious? What would you answer? You know, one of the answers to this question is uh, because what I think about God and what I actually believe about him in the moment are not always in alignment. They, they get disconnected. A disconnect arises between what I say I believe and what I actually functionally believe. Another way of saying it is, is there's a disconnect between the way that I think and the way that I operate. If I say I think God is sovereign and loves me and I get anxious, there's something else going on. I either functionally believe he doesn't love me or he's not strong or something else is going on with his character in that moment. Now, one of the biblical words for this, uh, this is a pretty loaded phrase, oh, sorry, word I should say, is, uh, is hypocrite. But um, before you kind of spin out and go into the really negative, judgmental kind of side of what it actually means to be a hypocrite, uh, stop and consider what a hypocrite was in the first century. A hypocrite in the first century was an actor. That's who they were. Um, they would typically perform in the uh, Roman theatre or the Odeon. Um, they would wear masks, depending on who they were portraying, and over the course of the play, you would become clearer and clearer about who the person truly was underneath this mask. They would say one thing, they would portray one thing, and they would actually be another. It's actually no different to our society. Uh, actors do the same thing in our society. That's what an actor does. They, they go and they do something and they portray something that's not actually them. Now, Jesus is very critical of uh, hypocrites. Uh, we'll get to that 
in a minute. But I just want you to think about the hypocrite uh, category. Uh, one of the, um, the frequent criticisms of the church is that it's filled with hypocrites, isn't it? People who believe one thing and they act another way. And I would say to those critics, well, welcome to the club. Come and join us. There's always room for one more. I mean, who doesn't have a disconnect between what they say they believe and what they actually do believe in the moment? You know, when those of us who are Christians became Christians, something new happened inside of us, but something old actually remained in us. And I could ask you, who, who knows what I'm talking about at this point? It's like there is a fundamental disconnect in me sometimes. Things don't roll the way that they should roll. You know, you can be looking at something on a computer screen, which you shouldn't, and then offer a heartfelt prayer 20 minutes later. You know, at the project, we are well aware that there's a disconnect between, there's a disconnect within each one of us. And one of, our, one of our core values, I think, at the project, I don't even know whether we've articulated it, is we just want to be open about that. We want to be open about the fact that there is a disconnect within us. We don't want to promote this idea that we're really happy and comfortable with kind of paper mashing over this disconnect inside of us and end up in the land of hypocrisy in that we portray something which we're really not. We want to be real. We want to acknowledge uh, that we all live with some kind of disconnect, which brings me to point two. Point two is this. This is just a reality statement about humanity. We can say we believe one thing while functionally believing something else. That's true, right? We can. Now, if you're looking at that, you just go, well, that's a bit of a problem. It's a bit of a problem. How do you resolve it? Now, it could be that one of the things you actually need to do is you need to get your life in line with what the truth is. Uh, that's a thing. We often live in false realities. This is a constant theme in the scriptures is God's pulling us into his story, into his reality. Well, the question is, how do you do that? Do you sit down and think about what is true and really, really, really believe it so you can do the right things? There might be a place for that. You might sometimes, but if you do that, one of the things I think that you notice is that thinking is not the deepest foundation for your behaviour. Thinking is important, but your thinking and the way that you think about things is actually connected to what you love and what you worship. You know, what you love and what you worship in an ultimate sense actually shapes the beliefs that you hold inside of you. And this is point number three. Point number three is this. Functional truth, the one that you actually live by moment by moment, is always connected to what we ultimately love or worship. You see, belief is more than your mere thoughts. Belief is connected to what you love, to what you worship. You see, we are unceasing lovers and worshippers by nature. We never, ever stop. And it's this, it's the ultimate loves and, and the worship in our life, the thing that we orient our life around, which actually shapes the way that we interpret the facts going on around us. 
Now, we could spend a bunch of time talking about this, right? And there's already, there's been a bunch of deep philosophical and theological things I've been unpacking, but we're just not going to hang there long enough to unpack it. We'll be here another eight weeks for that. Um, but I want to just hang out in one particular takeaway of this, and, and that's this. You are never passive. You're never passive. You are always active, always loving and worshipping something. See, in the past, the way that people have envisaged it is you can learn theory and then you learn the practice as though those two things are separate. See, if at the core, at the deepest level, you're a lover and a worshipper, you are always active. You're never just doing theory and then doing practice. You're doing theory and practice all together, all the time. That's how it works. You see, the separation between theory and practice was from an old kind of, oh, it's still around, but it's, it's from a belief system called modernism where you actually separated those two things out. You did one and then you did the other and there was a sense in which you could do theory and be passive and then you'd be active in your actions. But after modernism came postmodernism. And what postmodernism did is it actually did a whole bunch of damage to a bunch of things. But one of the things that postmodernism did, which I think was very helpful, is it actually showed that action, that action or behaviour and theory are always intertwined. They're always intertwined. Now, interestingly, there are some heavy hitters theologically who are pushing in this direction too. One of my favourites is a guy called John Frame. And John Frame says this, and I quote, the line between theory and practice is not sharp. And he goes on to say, theory is one kind of practice. He says that even when you're doing theory, there's a practice that you're doing even when you're doing theory. So we are lovers and worshippers. Theory and practice are always kind of intertwined with each other. That's point number four. How you doing? Are you doing okay so far? Are you still with me? All right. Theory and practice are always intertwined in your life. You are active all the time. Now, I'm going to tweak this number four for you really quickly and I'm just going to change it for you right now. You notice that change on the screen there. Just swap out theory and swap in theology. Theology and practice are always intertwined in your life. Every time that you act, you communicate something about what you believe about God. Always. You always do. This is the way that it works. You, what you actually believe about God maybe could be part of the things that you say that you believe about God, but it's always part of what you do. Like what you, what you actually believe is always part of what you do. What does this mean? This means that when you watch someone and you watch someone's actions, you can learn what they theologically believe about God from the way that they act. Is this, is this fair enough? You can work that out. And one of the things I think as humans is um, we, we know this. We know that there's more value most of the time in paying attention to what someone does more than what they say. Does anyone know the little phrase that we use to describe 
that it's about talk is cheap, all right? That's that one, talk is cheap. Oh, you can say whatever you want, but I'll watch what you do and I'll learn what you actually believe from what you do. And when you look at the Bible, it's, it's less common that God puts his people in a classroom and teaches them like a teacher at a school than it is that he shows them the things that he does. Because God teaches people, in the Bible, God teaches people what he's like through his actions. Uh, Karl Barth once said, he wrote, God is who he is in his works. So you look at what God does and you can learn about who he is. This is what you see in Exodus chapter 14, that God says, I'm going to get glory over the Egyptians and they will know that I am the Lord when I dominate them, basically, and drown them in the Red Sea. How are they going to know that God's the Lord? How are they going to learn that theory or that theology? Through God's works. He's going to do something and they're going to see who God is. So here's the bottom line. You can learn theological truth through God's practices, through what he does. And I would argue that there's a lot of that in the Bible. You look at what God does and what, how he's acted in history and you can learn things about him. Here's my fifth point. I'm just going to take it the next little step. Practice is a powerful teacher of truth. Now, parents know this, right? And the reason why parents know it is because kids often say, why do I have to do it? And sometimes you can explain it to them and they'll be happy with it, but other times kids won't be happy with it. And so what does a parent do? Well, you just need to go and do it and then you'll know why I want you to do it. You see what that is? That's actually teaching something true and right by doing practice. And surprise, surprise, when we get to the scriptures, we actually find out in the scriptures that God is like that. He, the, the, the activity, sorry, to know something is actually an active thing in the scriptures. It's not like sit still and receive and be passive. It's actually go and do it and then you'll know it. Let me give you an example. John chapter 8, verse 31 to 32 so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, what, what is abiding in his word? How do you do that? Well, you know how you do that? You obey it. <laughs> and so if you obey his word, you will know the truth. It's like you're going to know something about God by going and obeying it. See, this is the way that God often works. He, he pushes us into practices that teach us things about him. God will often teach you about himself as you act and after you have finished, you'll say, I know something about God which I didn't know beforehand. Which is why, parents, it's really important for you to have practices and personal liturgies in your families because that actually teach, those teach your kids things about God. Let me give you one more example. This is from the uh, call of Moses in Exodus 3. So God's called Moses to go and rescue the Israelites out of Egypt and um, Moses pushes back on God, right? It's, 
Not always a particularly smart thing to do, but he has a, a conversation with God, pushes back on God. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, but I will be with you. Listen to this. And this shall be the sign for you. So Moses is going, how do, I, how do I know that I'm the one that's supposed to do this? He goes, right, I'm going to give you a sign. Now, anyone here in this room, anyone online, you'd be going, give me the sign before I go and do it. Give me some evidence before I go and do it. What does God do? This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You see the problem? Like how... <laughs> Moses is going, give me some evidence. Give me something, some ballast in my soul here. And God's going, okay, here's a ballast for you. After you've done everything I said, you're going to come back and worship on this mountain. And it's like, that's not helping. But that actually is the way that God works. He says, go and do the thing that I've called you to do. And as you do it, you're going to learn about me and you're going to learn the truth about me in a way that he can't learn it by God just giving him another sign to do. In Exodus 3, practice is a powerful teacher of truth. You know, you think about it in your life. One of the things, um, one of the prayers I like to pray and that I encourage other people to pray because sometimes I talk with people and I struggle personally in myself to trust in God. And uh, so one of the things um, I've said to people in conversation with them, it's something I do myself, is... Um, you should just tell God that you don't know how to be dependent upon him and you don't know how to trust in him. And there's a trick in the prayer. You know what the trick in the prayer is? Is that by actually telling God that you don't know how to do something, you don't know how to be dependent, you don't know how to trust, you're actually being dependent and you're actually trusting. So there's a practice that's leading that's leading you and helping you to arrive at the truth when you can't get it going in your head properly. Now, that's my five points. Here's probably your question, at least some of you, maybe online, uh, maybe in the room here. Um, so what? What's the point? I thought we are doing James. Can someone just, it's like, so what? Nice one, Peter. Well, um, there are lots of points in what I'm saying today and there's lots of stuff in what I'm saying that is connected into James. Because you know, James is really passionate about the very things that I've been talking about this morning. He's really, really concerned about people not living a fragmented reality or living a fragmented life. If, uh, if you've got your Bibles or your phones or whatever with you, I'd love for you just to turn to James now. I just want to read a few scriptures out of James on this very thing. We'll start at James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verse 22. You see, James gets concerned about the way that people engage with the truth of Scripture. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 24. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. You see that? That's the disconnect I was talking about. 
deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Go to James chapter 2, verse 19. James is concerned with the disconnect between what people say they believe about God and what they functionally believe about him. You know, this is in the middle, excuse me, in the middle of a section um, which is about people who say that they have faith but they don't have any works and they, they get outed by James uh, and he highlights their disconnect. James chapter 2 verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You know, he's, he's talking there about people thinking they've got some kind of theoretical faith that's disconnected from the way that they operate. And he's going, yeah, well, that's demons have got that too. Go to James chapter 3, verse 10 to 12. James is concerned with those whose actions don't match up with who they are supposed to be. James chapter 3 from 1 to 12 is all about the use of the tongue and the things that we say. Starting at verse 10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What's he saying? He's saying if you are one thing, if you belong to Jesus, it's not right for you to be cursing other people with your mouth. James is into this stuff. He's into this consistency between what we believe in our heart of hearts and the way that we operate. And the thing I love heaps about James is he loves being practical. And don't miss the masterstroke in this. Don't be tricked into thinking there's not that much theology in James. This is theology in practice in James. It's theology, uh, theologically rich. I remember a while ago, I uh, was talking to a good friend of mine and we're talking in particular about uh, biblical counselling and um, we kind of, um, at one point, we're kind of bemoaning the fact that um, there's some practices that, personal kind of practices in the church at times that kind of smuggle in some unhelpful truth, truth in inverted commas. it smuggles in some unhealthy, unhelpful uh, beliefs and, uh, and things that people hold on to. And, and we did kind of bemoan it for a little while. And then he just made this comment to me. He goes, um, do you know something? He said, if um, practices can smuggle in bad theology, good practices can smuggle in good theology. <laughs> and uh, that, that was kind of when the hope kind of turned. It's like, yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think this is what James is doing. It's th- they're good practices and built into these good practices is a whole bunch of really helpful theology. So who wrote the book of James? Go to James 1 verse 1. And uh, look, you can probably answer this. Who wrote the book of James? James. Okay. James. James chapter 1 verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, obvious question if James wrote it is which James so uh, biblically we've probably got four options Um, a couple of notable kind of options from the Bible Um, 
One of them uh, is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John and Peter. Uh, another option, and this is the one that uh, church tradition holds, uh, actually wrote the book of James, and I think there's really, really good arguments for it, is uh, Jesus' brother James. Um, there's really, really good arguments for that. Now, the interesting thing about that is if uh, it's actually James, the brother of Jesus, that wrote uh, the book of James, that's, that's amazing. Because uh, we know that before the resurrection, Jesus' brother, James, in John 7 verse 5, it says his brothers didn't even believe in him. We see in Mark 3 verse 20 to 21, um, then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. I mean, this is probably the guy who's just going, he's gone mad. The guy has gone mad. And like, think about it for a minute. Um, Jesus would have been a really annoying brother. Don't you think? I mean, do you think about sibling and sibling rivalry? Imagine growing up with a brother who never got anything wrong, ever. Like whenever there was a fight between you and him, it's always your fault, every time, every single time. I mean, imagine, it's like, oh, right, you, you think you're the Messiah, do you? The goody tissues. But after the resurrection, um, what we see is James, the brother of Jesus, lining up. He's in the prayer team. Uh, Acts 1 verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, and his brothers. Galatians 1 verse 19, Paul says, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, he might, have, he might not have been a believer uh, in, in the sense um, just totally persuaded about Jesus uh, before the resurrection. But imagine how immersed James would have been in, uh, in Jesus' teaching, growing up alongside him. You remember the, when he was, a, I think, a 12-year-old in the temple, you know? The leaders of the temple, they're just uh, stunned by... Um, his wisdom, his knowledge. I mean, James, the brother of Jesus, was uh, the leading elder in the Jerusalem church, the first bishop. He was uh, martyred in AD 62 by stoning for refusing to renounce his commitment to Jesus. I think, I think this is the guy that wrote the book of James, this guy. And he writes to, um, to multiple churches. You notice that in James chapter 1, verse 1. Now, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It looks like um, the Christians have been scattered through the persecution that happened in Jerusalem, and James is writing this letter um, to those churches. What's he doing? He's doing the work of a pastor, a practical pastor. And as you read the book of James, you know that James has got a pastor's heart. He regularly speaks as a family member. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 2 leads it off counted. All joy, my brothers. My brothers. And some people even suggest that James, and I'm pretty persuaded by this, when you read the book of James, it's, it sounds more like a preacher than it does a writer. One theologian put it this way. This man was a preacher before he was a writer. 
that particular theologian said it, it almost feels like um, James is a bit like people had listened to James speak and then they go, you've got to write that down. You've got to write that stuff down. That's really, really good stuff. I want to start moving things to a close here this morning, but one thing I want you to notice um, in the book of James is that both Jesus and James are aware of the disconnect that happens between us. They are well aware of the fact that we live fragmented lives a lot of the time, that there's a residual of the old man, the flesh. And you know what this book is about? This book of James is about helping you to live authentically for Jesus. Jesus and James want you to be whole. They want you to be truly human. And what James is going to do, and Jesus through it, through the book of James, is teach you good, wise, skillful living, skillful practice. I wonder if the music team can come up now. I want to read you a, uh, a quote from Eugene Peterson, which I think is really helpful. It's actually the introduction to the book of James in the message. Make a couple of comments and then we're done. You can follow this with me. When Christian believers gather in churches, everything that can go wrong sooner or later does. Outsiders, on observing this, conclude that there's nothing to the religion business except perhaps business and dishonest business at that. Insiders see it differently. Just as a hospital collects the sick under one roof and labels them as such, the church collects sinners. Many of the people outside the hospital are every bit as sick as the ones inside, but their illnesses are either undiagnosed or disguised. It's similar with sinners outside the church. So Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behaviour. They are, rather, places where human misbehaviour is brought out in the open, faced and dealt with. The letter of James shows one of the church's early pastors skillfully going about his work of confronting, diagnosing and dealing with areas of misbelief and misbehaviour that had turned up in congregations committed to his care. Deep and living wisdom is on display here, wisdom both rare and essential. Wisdom is not primarily knowing the truth, although it certainly includes that. It is skill in living. For what good is a truth if we don't know how to live it? What good is an intention if we can't sustain it? According to church traditions, James carried the nickname Old Camel Knees because of thick calluses built up on his knees from many years of determined prayer. The prayer is foundational to the wisdom. Prayer is always foundational to wisdom. Since... Um, well, it scares me, I don't have to say this, but since my younger days, I, I have always wanted to be wise. Always. Now, I may not have always been wise, but I've always wanted to be wise. It's been a common prayer of mine, God, would you help me to be wise? And sometimes one of my sons asks me, Dad, can you pray that God would help me to be wise? And I'd ask you this morning, is that you? Do you want to be wise? Do you not want to be fragmented anymore? Do you want to be whole?
Well, if you do, James is for you. James is for you. And uh, I'm looking forward to going on this journey with you all. Let's pray. Yeah, Jesus, if, we, uh, if we're just honest with ourselves, we, we can just turn up to you uh, before you now and just say, um, yeah, we have some good moments of uh, <laughs> being consistent, being unfragmented, and then we just have other moments where we're fragmented. Um, I just love that you know it, that it's not um, a surprise to you that you've made uh, preparations for us to help us. Just thank you that you've uh, included a book like James in the scriptures to show us how to live whole, how to not be fragmented and how to, how to be real. So you've got to pray for us as we uh, head on this journey over the next number of months and um, just ask you to speak to us. Would you help us all as we hang out here to, um, to grow in wisdom. We, we are in a time that requires skillful living. And uh, we know that um, we're not going to have that kind of skill on our own. I want you to skill us up. Amen.